Nappy here, nappy here. Cling fast, cling fast. Ena mana ena reo tēnei te mihi atu ki a koutou katoa ko maraea rakarakutine ko te hōtaka tēnei a te ahikā. I'm Justin Murray and you're with Tiahika, the weekly Kaupapa Māori series on Radio New Zealand National. Māori reacted strongly to the Foreshaw and Seabed Act in 2004. The legislation, perhaps more than any other introduced to this country in recent times, has divided the nation. It caused ructions on a local level and brought worldwide media attention to a country that often prides itself on being a leader in human rights. Last week it was again brought to the forefront internationally in a United Nations report. Ngāti Kahununu lawyer Moana Jackson backgrounds the Foreshore and Seabed Act. Before that we hear from Ngāti Whakaue law lecturer Claire Charters who has built a legal career around representation of Māori interests on an international scale. Last week she was in Geneva, Switzerland lobbying the United Nations Human Rights Council on behalf of Māori and as a member of the non-government organisation the Aotearoa Indigenous Rights Trust. Mariah asked her a number of questions, including how New Zealand stacks up internationally in relation to human rights. I think there's a recognition that New Zealand's human rights issues are not as acute as, say, maybe Afghanistan um, at the moment. But I would also say that there is a clear appreciation coming through the Human Rights Council that there are human rights issues for Māori, for example, there is a clear perception in the Human Rights Council or states that make up the Human Rights Council that, that not everything is hunky-dory. In our series, Profiling Māori Music and New Zealand Music Month, I'm with hip-hop trio Smash Proof, whom, as of last week, still retained the number one spot on the charts. The boys' background is a Polynesian mix, Tyree is Nguyen, Ndich is Samoan, and Young Sid is Cook Island Māori. And these boys are staunch to the kaupapa of hip-hop. Which may, in some cases, conflict with their culture, or not. Like, um, I didn't grow up with a, like, a strong like Māori background or nothing like that, so I pretty much just took off from what my parents... Listen to yeah, 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 what they listen to. like, But I still try and infuse some, like, not moldy words or nothing. I, I let people know what I'm about, what, 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 you know, what, I, what I am, cook ala moldy, always. I'm Mariah Rakaraku. And I'm Justin Murray, and that's what's lined up in this week's edition of Te Ahika. The Travelling Ministerial Review Panel Hui on the 2004 Foreshore and Seabed Act that's been going on for the past four weeks is slowly winding down. When the last hui ends this upcoming Tuesday, the panel will compile all the oral and written submissions, write a report and make recommendations to the government, which will find either the legislation is repealed or upheld. Ngāti Kahununu lawyer Moana Jackson isn't so sure the outcome will be any different than the current situation, but that is balanced by the faith he has in the credibility and experience of panel members Justice Jury, Richard Boast and Hannah O'Regan. But how did it all start? What is the Foreshore and Seabed Act? The general background to the Foreshore and Seabed is, is actually a very old one that, that reaches back to the Raupatu or confiscations of our land in the 19th century um, when our people lost millions of acres under various laws and policies and blatant theft 
committed by the Crown. But in taking that land, they actually left little pockets um, which they did not, under the law, um, formally take. And one of those small pockets was the stretch around the coast that Parkour called the foreshore and seabed. And so in the late 1980s, the people of Natiapa at the top of the South Island went to the Māori Land Court to see if, in fact, the foreshore and seabed, which they had always regarded as theirs, was, in fact, still part of their domain under Pākehā law as well as tikanga. And they wanted to do that because they wanted to get into the business of muscle farming off the coast. Um, the Māori Land Court decided that the foreshore and seabed was indeed theirs. Uh, that decision was then appealed to the High Court, which overturned it and said that the foreshore and seabed belonged to the Crown. Um, Ngātiapa then appealed that decision to the Court of Appeal, which in 2003 issued a decision that Ngātiapa did indeed have the right to go to court and to prove that the foreshore and seabed did belong to them. The Court of Appeal decision was a very narrow decision, but on the very evening of the day that it was released, the government announced that it would overturn the decision by legislation because, in its view, the foreshore and seabed belonged to all New Zealanders. And that decision um, was a gross abuse of parliamentary power, but not unknown to our people, and was opposed by our people for a number of reasons. Um, firstly, because in overturning the decision, it was taking away a right of our people to go to court, the right that we call due process. But more importantly, it was indicating that the Crown in the 21st century was just as prepared to pass laws to confiscate our whenua as it was in the 19th century, and that indeed colonisation had not gone away, as Parker people like to tell us. And I think it's important to note that it wasn't only the Labour government which thought that it should be taken off us. Um, the National Party was equally strident in support of that and actually erected a whole lot of billboards around the country saying that the beaches belong to all New Zealanders. And that then began a deliberate crown process of misinformation, of stirring up Parker resentment against our people, while at the same time causing 
great distress to our people and also considerable anger, uh, which came together in Huia Iwi around the country and then in three national hui um, and claims to the Waitangi Tribunal, uh, which suggested that the government should hold back from the legislation and engage in a longer conversation with Māori. It also prompted our people to appeal to the uh, United Nations Human Rights Commission, as it then was, to seek hearings with the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and of course to march in their thousands on the Hikoi to Wellington to protest. All of those actions and all of those protests were dismissed by the Crown, and the legislation was passed. And one result of that in political terms, of course, was that Tariana Turia, who was then a minister in the Labour government, left the government and formed the Māori Party, and as a result of their agreement with National, um, there is now the ministerial panel to review the existing foreshore and seabed act. So if the National Party supported the foreshore and seabed legislation in 2004 under the Labour government, wasn't it therefore reneging on that position by now facilitating a ministerial review panel of the same legislation? Well, politicians constantly change their mind depending on where they think the state of public opinion is at, of course. Um, And I'm not really that sure what their motivation was. Um, What I am sure about is that the members of the panel, uh, chaired by Justice Eddie Jury, are considered respected people, and I'm quite confident that the recommendations that they make um, on the existing legislation may well lead to a better, better situation for our people. However, because, like all review panels, it only has the power to recommend, there's no guarantee that the national government will act on the recommendations. So the the two issues that I think that confront us at the present time are what sort of recommendations will the panel make? And my own guess, and it's only a guess, is that they will seek the repeal of the current legislation, um, but the second issue is what the national government will put in its place, and of course it could well be something worse. Um, but our people, I think, do have faith and respect for the members of the panel, and have attended hui and public meetings to make their views known, and those views have barely changed um, in the last five years. So at the time that the uh, Act was passed, the media was really seizing on the fact that Māori were going to deny the public access to beaches. Now, is it that simple? Well, no, and and that is a lie. Um, as, As I mentioned earlier, the government and 
the media together really um, embarked on a deliberate campaign of scaremongering um, in spite of Māori constantly saying that we had never denied access to the beaches before, um, that in our own tikanga there is a history of allowing kohanga or access ways to the beach that go back centuries and that if people were indeed concerned about that we would be prepared to sign covenants um, to guarantee access, uh, yet in spite of all of that work and all, in spite of all of those statements, the government and the media persisted in stirring up resentment that ordinary Pākehā families wouldn't be allowed to go down to the beach to have their summer barbecue. And that is one of the most blatant and dishonest and destructive lies that I think the Crown and the media have ever perpetuated. And what it did was instill a lot of antagonism among Pākehā towards our people, um, which made it very difficult to convey either the injustice that was being done to us or the anger and frustration which our people felt. And although the Hikoi did not move the government to withdraw the legislation, I think what it did show was the depth of that concern and that outpouring of concern, the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who marched through Wellington did lead many thinking Parker to pause and say, well, there's more to this than meets the eye. And that led many other non-Māori people to actually come out in, in support of the Māori claims at the time. Now, a number of strategies were used to protest against the Foreshore and Seabed Act, including a visit by Rodolfo Stavenhagen. Now, he sits on a committee that represents Indigenous rights. A special rapporteur is part of the human rights framework within the United Nations, and he is the highest-ranking official charged with monitoring um, our government respect or do not respect uh, the rights of Indigenous peoples. And his report was very critical um, of the government, very critical of the proposed legislation, um, but it was essentially ignored by, by the government. And both the Labour and National parties again seemed to collude and um, attack both the position and the individual, Professor Stavenhagen, as indeed they seem to collude together to attack the findings of the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which actually found that the legislation was in breach of the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination and was therefore a breach of our human rights. And the fact that they were so willing to publicly belittle and dismiss those findings is really just an indication of their bloody-mindedness on, on, on the issue and their willingness to deal unjustly with, with, with our people. 
I'm Mariah Rakraku, this is Te Ahika, and I'm talking with Moana Jackson about the Foreshore and Seabed Act. Now, since the passing of the Foreshore and Seabed Act in 2004, what other strategies have been used to counter the legislation? Well, the international work at the United Nations has continued, and every year since the Act was passed, our people have made uh, submissions to different United Nations human rights bodies. Um, Books have been published about the issue, and our people have tried to keep it alive. And of course, once Tariana Turia formed the Māori Party, um, the repeal of the legislation became one of its key policy platforms. So, although a lot has happened since, the the basic injustice of the issue has not been forgotten because one doesn't easily move on from injustice. Wana, why should Pākehā care about this? I think everyone should care if a government chooses to abuse the human rights of people. Um, I think if a society lets its government or lets itself accept breaches of human rights, if it allows one group of people to be treated unfairly in relation to another, then that society is in serious moral trouble. And there is no doubt um, that the Act was and is a, a gross violation of our human rights. It does discriminate against us. Um, for example, Parker who have land um, that includes parts of the foreshore and seabed did not have their parts taken off them by the legislation. Um, the demands that Māori should allow, allow access to the foreshore and seabed were not imposed on Parker landowners who can still deny access to the foreshore and seabed through their land. So not only was the and is the legislation blatantly unjust to Māori, it's also blatantly discriminatory because it treats our people differently um, to others. And I think any society should be concerned about that if it is going in all honesty to say it is a, a just and fair society. For our people who marched on the hikoi, often for some of them it was the first time they'd ever protested against something, and then to encounter all these barriers, whether they're legal ones, political ones, apart from the fact that there are very experienced and uh, respected people on the, on the review panel, I mean, what faith can they have in that process? I think it's very hard to honestly say that our people should have faith in any Crown process because they are essentially colonising processes and history shows how badly and unjustly they treat our people. But our people have always known that you use whatever tools you can to ensure the maintenance of our rangatiratanga, to ensure the protection of our rights 
but just as many of us did not believe that the hikoi would change the government's minds, um, it was a strategy that we decided to develop and ask our people to be part of because it was one way of publicly stating the opposition. And perhaps more importantly, it left a reminder for our mukapuna that we actually did do something, that we tried the best we could to preserve things for them. And I think that that is really important, and I think that is something our tūpuna always did for us, and that we have an obligation to do for ours as well. Ngāti Kahununu lawyer, Moana Jackson. As he mentioned, Māori have used a number of strategies to show their disquiet or protest at the actions of the government. Back in the day, it was sending delegations to meet the English monarchy, kanohi ki te kanohi, from one rangatira to another. Writing books or calling hui a iwi. Another method has been representing Māori dissatisfaction to one of the highest international bodies, the United Nations. So what does happen on an international scale and how does New Zealand stack up against its contemporaries when undergoing a rigorous human rights review as is part of the United Nations membership? Claire Charters is a senior law lecturer at Victoria University in Wellington and for the past 10 years has worked with a New Zealand-based non-government organisation or NGO, Aotearoa Indigenous Rights Trust. It's in her capacity as a representative of this organisation that Charters made submissions to the United Nations Human Rights Council Universal Periodic Review. The Trust is a small organisation made up of really um, a a few Māori individuals who have got an interest in international affairs and particularly as they relate to Māori. And um, we don't necessarily... Uh, purport to represent Māori as such, but um, we have been active in various different international fora, like we've been negotiating the the, or joining part of the the negotiations on the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, We were also active in the establishment of of a new UN body called the Expert Mechanism on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And have participated in what's called the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous um, Issues, which meets in New York and will be meeting um, this week. And some of us, um, and, and particularly me, have, have acted for some tribes in some treaty bodies. So, for example, the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Um, and then we were acting for, well, I was acting for um, the Treaty Tribes Coalition, uh, which includes, for example, Naitahu. And uh, to, to bring a claim in relation to the Forsher and Seabed Act, which we probably all know about the 2005 decision about, um, so, well, from the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, that the Forsher and Seabed Act was discriminatory against Māori. The UN is a big organisation, and it has one principal body that's focused on human rights, and that at the moment is the Human Rights Council. So that is the body that undertook this universal periodic review of New Zealand. Alongside that principal UN body that looks at human rights, the Human Rights Council, you also have a raft of other specialised human rights institutions. So they include the Special Rapporteur on Indigenous Peoples, 
There's a bunch of special rapporteurs that look at spe- uh, specific issues and they report back to the Human Rights Council. So they're subsidiary entities related to the Human Rights Council. But the Human Rights Council is, I guess, the principal human rights body of the United Nations. You also have um, various different human rights treaties, and each of those treaties has a committee set up in association with it. So, for example, the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination examines states' compliance with the treaty on the elimination of racial discrimination. And there's a bunch of different treaties. So they're separate from, I guess, the principal human rights body, which is the Human Rights Council. The Universal Periodic Review is a new mechanism, or relatively new mechanism, that was established um, around 2006 by what's called the uh, United Nations Human Rights Council. Now, the Human Rights Council was um, established, I guess, to prioritise human rights more within the UN system. It's made up of states um, who address a number of human rights issues, and one of their roles is to undertake these universal periodic reviews of all states. So the universal periodic review is focused on looking at a state's compliance with international human rights norms. So, for example, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. It's an interesting process. Um, Usually... Well, always the, the state will present a report and that will be done in advance. Then NGOs have an opportunity to submit um, what you might like to call a shadow reports, which raise particular human rights issues in the, in the state. And there's also um, a UN uh, secretariat body, like a, I guess, administrative office that, that looks at all the UN work in relation to that state. So, for example, in relation to New Zealand, um, this UN Secretariat compiled a report of all the um, human rights issues that had come up in New Zealand that had come to the UN's attention. So, for example, that included um, information about the special rapporteur's visit to New Zealand. Um, We might remember that that the special rapporteur on Indigenous peoples came to New Zealand and undertook a report about uh, New Zealand's I guess, um, activities in relation to Indigenous peoples. And that was back in 2005? Yes. If you've got the internal mechanisms within the United Nations, so you get this report from a state or from a country that says we're addressing um, our human rights in this way within our country. Yeah. Yes. And then you get the submissions in from the NGOs, which, you know, for, for instance, your group, and yes. then the United Nations have their internal mechanisms. I mean, is the purpose to cross-check to see if what the state is saying is actually happening within their country is actually happening within their country? To some extent, I guess, yes. Um, it's certainly a check on whether the country is complying with international human rights norms. But it's really as much just to compile what information the UN already has in relation to New Zealand so that then states who are part of the Human Rights Council can use that information to themselves assess, question New Zealand's compliance with human rights or any other state. 
Okay, so if we look at the draft report yep. of the Working Group on the Universal Periodic Review, so on the front page of the report it's got um, New Zealand, how they've complied, and then it's got each country that yes. kind of asks questions, you know, how were you, what about this, what about this, what about this? So I yes. noted that for one of the countries they asked and this was highly publicised when um, when it was released that, you know, why isn't New Zealand part of the declarations on Indigenous peoples? Because we were one of four countries that didn't sign that, aren't we? Yes, we're one of the four countries that didn't support that declaration. Um, and now we are one of the remaining three who doesn't support the, the declaration. Because Australia, uh, just in early April, decided to support the, the, the declaration also. Um, so that was, I guess, embarrassing internationally. I think for New Zealand, particularly because we hold out uh, hold ourselves out as a as a nation um, that protects Indigenous peoples' rights. Um, so I, also that that declaration had been through the Human Rights Council and its process of adoption. So a number of the, of the states that were present during New Zealand's report were also also had the declaration in their in their mind, so it's not surprising that that came out. I think in Aotearoa we've got different perceptions um, from government and Māori, unsurprisingly, I guess, of of um, what's the right way to go about doing things. And the government, I think, often talks up um, its policies in relation to Māori, but they're not necessarily what Māori would... Um, would think is, is is particularly, I guess, appropriate policies in relation to Māori. So, and I think that very much comes through, which is really the purpose of um, of what your group is doing, the Aotearoa Indigenous Rights Trust. Certainly, and 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 also a number of other human rights groups um, and and other NGOs, and 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 particularly also tribes. Also, you'll see that our our joint submission was again supported by um, Treaty Tribes Coalition and and a bunch of other iwi organisations. Um, so certainly, we're trying to highlight that disparity between how the government presents itself um, as a human rights abiding government or nation and yet we're trying to highlight that there are that there are actually problems there I should say though that what was quite interesting um, I've been to a few of these um, UN assessments I guess of New Zealand's human rights compliance and I should say that that in this case I thought New Zealand did a pretty good job of being self-critical so, for example, when New Zealand um, presented before the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination in 2007, it was just this relatively um, frequent reporting that it does to, to this body. I thought that New Zealand tried to paint a too bright a picture of, of its human rights compliance. And compared to that ex that experience, I thought New Zealand in this case in 2009 before the Human Rights Council took a far more constructive and self-critical approach. For example, um, uh, Simon Power recognised that there were still disparities on socio-economic grounds between Māori and non-Māori. Now, in previous 
fora in, in the UN, I haven't heard New Zealand be um, that, I guess, accepting that there are issues that it needs to work on. And that I thought was really positive. So would you say then that even though we've had a change in government in this country, that there are differences in how they approach these issues on an international scale? Certainly, when you compare our approach, um, or New Zealand's approach, the government's approach in 2007 and now in 2009, I think Simon Power and his delegation took a a far more deferential and constructive approach. Um, I wonder to some extent whether the mood of the country has changed somewhat over the last couple of years. Um, I think post Forscher and Seabed, uh, we went through a bit of a down patch in relations between Māori and um, the government. And I think that was coming through on an international level um, so that that big disparity, I guess, between what what Māori thought about what the government was doing and what the government thought about what it was doing in relation to Māori um, has maybe not so much lessened, but I think the government is more prepared to deal with some of those issues at the moment. That's trying to be that's trying to be positive, obviously, about highly complex and difficult issues. But um, certainly in this forum, they were they were. A lot more constructive than I've seen. So compared to other countries, Claire, I mean, how does New Zealand stack up? Well, it's that's a that's a good question because, for example, Afghanistan uh, followed New Zealand in the UPR process, and of course, Afghanistan has got hugely protracted and incredibly difficult um, human rights issues. Um, and so I think there's a recognition that New Zealand's human rights issues are not as acute as maybe, say, somewhere in, say, maybe Afghanistan um, at the moment. But I, I would also say that there is a clear appreciation coming through the Human Rights Council that there are human rights issues for Māori, for example. Um, Also, there was questions raised about our anti-terrorism legislation, um, about domestic violence, etc. But particularly in relation to Māori issues, there is a clear perception in the Human Rights Council or states that make up the Human Rights Council that that not everything is hunky-dory when it comes to Māori issues. And that that extends, I guess, from, from anything from... The fact that other states find it quite, um, I guess, confusing, if if not very odd, that you don't have constitutional, firm constitutional protection of human rights, so that it's not possible to go to the courts to overturn legislation that is inconsistent with human rights in New Zealand. Now, we're one of the few countries in the world that doesn't have such a robust constitutional protection of rights. Now for other states that's that's really odd, including even states that we would we would compare ourselves to as as neighbours and as friends. So for example Canada constitutionally protects treaties between um, First Nations peoples and the government and also constitutionally protects Aboriginal rights, including 
Aboriginal title rights. So in New Zealand, we don't have constitutional protection in that sense in the same way as Canada. Um, we also don't recognise the self-determination of Māori in the same way that the US does. So there's a, there's a real clear perception that, that I think coming through the Human Rights Council that New Zealand does have issues and could do more to make sure that we've got robust protection of, say, treaty rights um, and other Indigenous peoples' rights. Coming up next week is part two of that interview with Claire Charters, where we get into the recommendations made in the Universal Periodic Review by the United Nations Human Rights Council to New Zealand and how that fares for Māori. And for more information, make sure to go to our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash te That's spelt T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A. The month of Haratua, May, is New Zealand Music Month and Te Ahika will profile Māori musicians and Māori music. Waiata Māori. Now while doing this, Justin has discovered a few things about our musicians, which in a way has made us question what defines a Māori musician and what is Māori music. I'm here with Smash Proof and I'm talking to... Tari Ditch. Young Sid. And so has music always been um, a shared passion? Um, yeah. We've all st- we all studied music at school. And we're all like into... Oh, except for Young Sid. But I did and Tari did. And um, we like, you know, entered the little talent quests and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It was fun. It started from the beginning. Yeah. Can I just be rude and ask, if you, are you guys in your mid-20s? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, early. Early, early, early 20s? Early, yeah, So early. what kind of... You would have grown up in the 90s? Yeah. 90s, yeah. I started like 89, like Ice Cube, NWA. So yeah, that's where I started getting into pop when I was like four. Cool. And influences, music influences? Uh, Neo. Neo for me. Oh, Neo. Neo for you. Music influences? Yeah, man, just whatever was good at the time. You know, I like like all sorts. I like the the local talent as well. Um, I was actually like singing before I was a rapper. I, I became a rapper like late in my life, you know what I mean? I became a rapper at about... 15 yep like and started to get really serious about it and when i was 18 so went through some stages in my life where i was just like you know didn't know what i wanted to be either a rapper or singer now i'm both you know like after brother came out i was like real skeptical about bringing that out because i didn't want to be known as a singer yeah but now it's just opened my horizons as a musician and i'm not scared to do anything now now you've obviously done a few a lot of press about 11 weeks uh, Smash Proof song "Brother" with uh, Jin Wigmore. Have you gone out to Have you gone out to a nightclub to celebrate that, or have you, you know, where you just like, oh, sweet, cool, and then just moved on? Like, how uh, have you? Pretty much both. Um, we haven't really had our like had time to actually celebrate properly, mm. but like on our tours and that, we sort of celebrate, yep. but still, we didn't have to sit down with the boys and just talk about it around the table what we've accomplished in that. So, not really. Yeah, I should have just said that first thing. <laughs> <laughs> Try to go on rambling on and that. The first time we heard that we were number one, yep. you know, I was driving and I got the text and I was I was like, wow, yeah. And I was happy. The next week, you know, it was like number, number one again. Oh, yeah, I might as well celebrate again. And then next thing you know, five weeks um, later, yeah, five we weeks. were like, oh, okay. Can't go out every Do you guys actually remember the song Sailing Away by all of us? Um, not really. We uh, know the the Maori version. Yeah, oh, the not the Maori version, but yeah. the the, the other version. The tune was like familiar, isn't it? Um, remix of Kari Kari. Oh, 
New Zealand yeah, can do no, it. I can't remember, but... <laughs> See, isn't that... Isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Gee. Poor Kari Kariana. Yeah. Gee, I think I was about 10 when that song came out. Um, yeah, I wasn't even alive. So when people said, hey man, you guys have smashed the record because Sailing Away did it for nine weeks, did you guys, did you guys think, what is that song, Sailing Away, or did you know straight away? Um, no, we didn't know, we didn't, we didn't know, know yeah. like, sucks, and like, they kind of cheated, they had every, everyone that was famous at the time join together and do a song together. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, you know, everyone, you know everyone's favourites are on, on that song, and then they, you know, crack it. I actually thought it was, um, I actually thought it was Crowded House or... Or, um, Slice of Heaven by or, Dave yeah, Dobbin yeah, or something Dave like Dobbin, that. And, yeah, yeah I, I thought it was one of those dudes, but Slice right. of Heaven was the week before. Eh? Eight weeks. Yeah. Cool, guys. So um, I want to talk about um, um, individually your your culture and your heritage, and whether that plays a part or does it influence you in any way when it comes to writing or music or whatever. If we can start with you, Young Sid. Um. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It does. But it's like uh, I. I reckon it just depends on how you, how you grew up. Like um, I didn't grow up with a, like a strong like Modi background yep. or nothing like that. So I pretty much just took off from what my parents. Yep. Listen to. Yeah. 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 What they listen to. Like, but I still try and infuse some like not Modi words or nothing. I I let people know what I'm about. What 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 you know what I, what I am. Cook a la Modi. Always. Cool. You're hearing a couple of songs in that. And yeah. Um, yeah, my my dad he was he was in a band, so I got influenced by him a lot. And my whole family, you know, we used to sing um, church prayers, you know, for cool. like before choir or not like Grace. Oh, okay. <laughs> like before dinner. And before choir, used funny. to sing it. Yeah, we used to sing oh, like you know, no, no. Nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> How does that go? <laughs> nah, but yeah, and um, you know, my parents took me to church, and you know, as any islander or Pacific islander parents, you know, singing. Plays a big part. Yeah. In our music, so. Cool. Choirs and you know, you don't even want to be there, but you had to be in the choir. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sort of stuff. Awesome. Yeah. And what about you, Tyrone? Yeah, um, I'm New and then, yep. and I like to think that you know the New culture plays a big part in my music. I'm working on my uh, currently working on my second album at the moment, and I want to um really infuse my culture in this this time. Cool. Because I'm more growing up as a musician and as a young man as well, so. Like, you know, it's not about all about making the best songs, you know. That's what I found out about making this the album with the boys. It's not all about trying to make the best songs. It's just, you know, songs that people can relate to. Yeah. And I want to make some songs for the for the Pacific Islander community as more along the lines of my my culture, Nguyen. So I'm gonna like um, just a little hint of my album. I want to get my my nana on one of the tracks, just talking some Nguyen, um, uh, Nguyen like I don't know some. Famous coits or something. Cool. Yeah, so she's she's um she's a deacon at um at a church. So, what's the best thing about touring? Uh just just the fact that we're all boys, and like we're mates outside of this music thing. So just the tour with the boys, man, it's just the memories. You know, have funny anecdotes and stuff that we can talk about in the future. That's why I like touring. Yeah, it's like me, like because we're funny. We do. Stupid Stand things, man. We do stupid things. Maybe? Yeah, we do stupid things, but you know, that's good about us because we click together. Yep. The, the, the video brother, my, my my niece asked me the other day, why is there no car in the video? Why is it pretend and it's invisible? Um, Chris Graham's idea, he wanted us to travel around um, South Auckland with an invisible car. For example, us 
and that's our naked views. Like we see South Auckland, so yep. that's why you see through through like the car because we're driving through South Auckland and our naked views of South Auckland. That's what what we see. That's what we see in our rhymes. Yeah. Did you have any input into the creativeness behind the video? How it was structured? No, that was all Chris Graham's yep. idea. And he pretty much, like, he did a good job. You know, he couldn't do any better than that. Even if we did add in our five cents. Yeah, we, played, pretty, we played it to him, and he, you know, he really felt the song. Cool. And he had his yeah, idea. Yeah. That's, what I, that's what I really liked about Chris Graham, because he actually listened to our lyrics. Nice. Like, he actually listened and, and like, thought about how he was going to sort of, like, do those lyrics justice. And, like, with that, um, that dude tagging, you know, if, uh, yeah. how could you get any better than that? Jen Wigmore, to me, when I first heard her, she kind of had that, sort of Duffy slash Amy Winehouse kind of, I mean, original voice when you hear her, you know yeah. it's Jen Wigmore. Um, why why Jen Wigmore on the track? Did you, um, how did you approach you? We actually didn't, um, our label did Universal. Yeah. Um, this lady that was working there, Jess Peters, at the time, she um, got Jen Wigmore for us. Um, it was meant to be a, a rock singer. Oh. Like a, you know, male, hard rock singer. But the oh. rock singer was meant to sing the chorus, the one that Tari sings. Okay. And Tari was meant to sing what Jin sings, so it's a bit different yeah, than what we saw. So what was it like working with um, in the studio? You guys laid your tracks together? Nah, we uh, actually travelled up to um, Hokianga, the Hokianga region, and uh, laid down that song before uh, we met Jin. So yep. that song was probably like eight months old before she jumped on it. It's New Zealand Music Month. How do you think a more po- Polynesian or more Māori can get discovered? Like there's there's a lot of ways. There's YouTube. There's uh, like the sites, Bebo sites, MySpace sites. Just all those things. You can just get out there and hustle it yourself. Like it costs like what ten bucks to grab uh, like forty CDs. True. So you can just put all yeah. your put all your songs on CDs and just give them out. Not even have to sell them. Just get your name out there. Easy, simple like that. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Deech? How do you think? Yeah, just grinding. Really, you gotta let everyone know and just you know hustle for family. Play it to your family, then your family plays it to cousins, <laughs> the cousins plays it to friends. Go to the markets. Yeah, 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 and just, cool. you know, sell them yourself, like, to start with anyway. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, try radio stations. If they deny you, then just keep trying, you know. They must be denying you for some reason, you know. Change your music up. Don't say, like, you know, you're a gangster or something. Mm-hmm. Talk about real events. Finish off these sentences, okay? New Zealand music to me is? The best. Smash proof. Yeah, smash proof. <laughs> More Polynesian people should uh, exercise. <laughs> um, stay at school. Leave KFC alone. Um, in my downtime, I like to uh, just write music, uh, sleep, train. The worst thing about touring is uh, you have to wash your own clothes. <laughs> um, one star hotels. One really, really. Uh, if you get up. Or like if you have a big night and you have to get up with an early flight. <laughs> early flight. Um, when I'm on when I'm on stage, I think about. Um, why are they not looking at me? No. no, no. <laughs> um, the crowd reaction. In ten years, I want to be. Uh, president of some company. Um, owning my own house. I want to be like own my own business. On your own business. Yeah. And if I could turn back time, I would. Oh, man, I don't want to even get this start, man. <laughs> I, I, bro, I would. <laughs> I can't even answer okay. that. I'll just do so many things. Um, 
I wouldn't regret anything. Same. Yep. And on that note, Smash Proof, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Later, cuz. The lads from Smash Proof. Next week, we're with Lady Six, Caroline Thamati, the original Sheila Rock, Lady Six. Anita, a Claire Charters, Anor, Mete Fakatoki. Nappy here, nappy here. Cling fast, cling fast. For me, this um, Fakatoki uh, has an important personal meaning. Um, and also for the mahi that I do, it encapsulates the need to stand strong um, and maintain a commitment to achieving justice um, for Māori and to realise the legitimate and just claims of, of Māori. And... With, I guess, the international work that I've done, it, it, it is also reflects a commitment um, and a determination um, that New Zealand learn from international legal oversight and that using that international or the international mechanisms that we can better realise and see um, ways forward to achieve justice, I guess, for Māori. Kia ora, um, my name is Claire Charters. Um, I come from Ngāti Whakaua. Um, was brought up in a beautiful place called Lake Okaraka um, and have been working on Indigenous rights under international law, I guess, for over a decade now, either through university research and my job as a law lecturer at Victoria University of Wellington or through advocacy work at the UN. Kia ora, Claire Charters. That's us again, folks. Kua tai anō te wā mutinga a te ahikā, but before we cruise, next week I'm sitting in with a crew in Hawke's Bay workshopping hā kina kina Māori. That's Māori sports. Or, more precisely, tākaro tawhito. We're talking old styles here. Ki orahi. Dr Ihirangi Heke is literally breathing new life into traditional Māori sports. He's with us. He mihi tēnei ki ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Ki ngā kai rā wiki wiki mihini, kia ora rā. Hoki mai anō a tērā wiki e te iwi. Mauri ora tātou katoa.